Hallå! Hallå! Ahoy! Ahoy! Ahoy, matey! That's, that's, a, that's, that's my best accent. Remember, uh, remember last? There's a little bit of follow-up here. I don't, I don't do very good accents. Hey, but, but I hear you're an excellent chauffeur. Oh, I am, uh, I'm a fantastic chauffeur. Would you like to borrow my driver? Yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Chapman's not doing anything. Uh, <laughs> uh, could I, yeah, could I borrow your driver? Um, yeah, so, uh, I'm a, I'm a pretty good driver. Um, I've, uh, Don, there's a, this is a little, little known fact about me. I have never, never once been in a car accident. Ah, uh, but have you We're, ever have you ever driven on the wrong side of the road? Uh, I mean, the, well, well hey, and by wrong side, I mean I mean like in a country where they deliberately drive on the wrong side of the road. Yeah, it sounds like a little bit of a cultural uh, uh, in, in insensitivity there, where yeah, you, that little, you uh, just assume it's the wrong little, side. Yeah, a little little driving normative there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No. No problem. It's, I, I see where this is going. I have uh, driven on the other side or opposite of ro- side of the road uh, uh, in in, uh, in a few few places in in Ireland, in fact. Oh. Uh, well, that in... makes you uniquely qualified. I am. Yeah. So it's, I mean, what time done. are you? What time are you picking us up? I will. I will be there at. Uh, do you want this in uh, Green Greenwich time? Me, gre, me, whatever GMT. Green yeah. Gren, Greenwich. Green, Greenwich. Green, green, egg, green, egg, green eggs and ham time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, green eggs and ham time. I'll be there uh, when at Sam. I am o'clock. Um, I <laughs> so, will. Uh, yeah, so no one knows what we're talking. So we about. should. Well, we should, we should explain. People, well, people can yeah. probably guess. So. Um, so uh, we were all of us, all all the great, all the great food microbiologists um, were scheduled to be in uh, Ireland this week, um, but somehow uh, you decided not to come. Right. So, yes, I have. Um, a, I have a, a, you have a family. I have family, and and as Danny reminded me when someone asked me to do something uh, at another time, she said, "That's family time." Excellent. And so Excellent. it's Good true. It's family Good time. So, uh, so we have been Michelle, our, our good friend and colleague Michelle Daniluk, who we often talk about on the podcast, have been planning a uh, a, a writing retreat, um, an excursion um, in Ireland uh, this coming week, the week before uh, the food micro meeting, um, which is also in Ireland. And um, the plan was is that that all of us, uh, that is you, and by all of us, I mean, <laughs> I mean. All of the usual suspects, you and Linda Harris, me included, uh, and, yes, and and me and and my lovely wife, Kristen, um, were going to go to Ireland the week before uh, Food Micro, and we were going to travel around the countryside, um, solving food safety problems, writing grant proposals, um, uh, writing manuscripts, and just generally being, you know, uh, you know, sampling the wares of the uh, of the of the good uh, the good people of the countryside of Ireland, and. Uh, and somehow uh, you were not able to attend. Somehow Linda um, decided that she was too busy, what being a department chair or something. I don't know. Maybe she's looking, catching up on podcasts that she hasn't listened Maybe. to. Could um, mean she's doing her writing buddies writing while while you're all gallivanting. Well, well no gallivanting, no no gallivanting, Ben. It's all writing. Um, uh, but but then but then I broke my arm, and thank you, thank you to all of the fans who listened, um, who expressed uh, sadness and and um, uh, sympathy for my injury. So thank you to everybody that listened to episode one hundred three already and, and and reached out. I I do appreciate it. Um, 
Um, and so, the, yeah, so, so we were supposed to be gallivanting around the wrong side of the road in the Irish countryside. Um, and then I broke my arm, which meant that I'm not clear to drive in the United States, much less Ireland, although I am getting better, basically. It still would be technically illegal because I'm wearing this brace on my, on my uh, arm, but I, can, I could probably manage. Um, and then Michelle blew out her ACL, tore her ACL. And so, like, between the two of us, we make almost one, <laughs> one good driver. Um, right. And, and I feel like I, I don't want to go because I'm worried that I might get injured, like just based yeah. on the two of you. There's history here. So I'm not I'm, – I'm glad I'm away from that, for this because well, uh, had, had I planned on being uh, – planned on coming, I'm, I probably would have, you know, taken a, uh, an arrow through the, through the head or <laughs> some, some other uh, Steve Martin type uh, uh, injury. Yes, exactly. So, banjo fingers. Yeah. I'd have banjo fingers. Um, and so, of course, we were lamenting this fact, and so we just decided that you, because being able-bodied and not having anything to do and certainly not having any family time commitments, um, we would just simply ask you to come and be our driver, um, which you graciously agreed to, um, even with the cute little emoticons uh, via text message. So, so thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> we, we will look forward to you arriving with your jaunty cap um, at, the, uh, at the appointed time. It would, in a car that uh, is on the opposite, uh, not wrong side of the road, uh, and uh, with an Irish flag uh, somewhere. Um, I, so my, the other, the other uh, quick reference on, on follow up, and I think I've, we've, I've told this story on the podcast, and I, I know I've told you before, um, but uh, I, uh, I have been referred to as someone's driver. Uh, our, our good friend Doug Powell, mm. um, while we were on a golf trip uh, with a, a bunch of. Uh, Guys, uh, maybe a decade ago, um, I uh, we were in a um, in a group where uh, our friend Jeff Sheik asked Doug whether um, he could borrow and or use or try his driver, which is a golf club, and uh, Doug responded, "Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, Chapman, I'll take you wherever you want." <laughs> Excellent. So uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a driver. Well, you I, know, it's. Speaking, speaking of drivers and speaking of golf, that reminds me of something very funny, uh, which I saw recently uh, on the interwebs, which I don't think we've talked about on the podcast. Did you, um, did you happen to catch this thing where somebody from Fox News is interviewing the Dalai Lama and he asks the Dalai Lama about Caddyshack and about golf? No. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so this is, this is very funny. Um, uh, so it's we won't, I won't spoil it for you, but, but basically, if, and you, you are familiar with the, the, the movie um, Caddyshack. I, Don, you know, you know that I'm on. Have we not talked about this? Maybe, yeah, we have. Uh, we, we, you know that my hockey team. Oh is yes, Gunga Lagunga. Gunga Lagunga. Yeah, Gunga Lagunga. Yeah, yes. A total consciousness. So I got that going for me. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, uh, yeah. So, you know, so Fox News host uh, Brett Baer uh, grills the Dalai Lama. Have you ever seen the movie Caddyshack? And of course, I mean, it's kind of it's it's it got a lot of traffic because of that headline. But but honestly, it's a uh, it's a not a uh, not a really really long interview. It's about ten minutes. Um, and of course, the, the Dalai Lama is fantastic because he is just such a such a, a cool dude. And it's the 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 punchline, the uh, the Caddyshack thing, is a throwaway thing at the end. Um, but it's it's well worth listening to what the, the Dalai Lama has to say pretty much about everything because um, he's just a pretty cool dude. But um, <laughs> the, 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 this, this Fox News host, um, you know, attempts to be humorous and the Dalai Lama just does not get the joke. Um, uh, and so, so he the, the, got the, the host asks him if he ever plays golf and the Dalai Lama says, no, I play uh, badminton. 
And uh, anyway, it's delightful, and it's it's uh, it's we'll, we will link to it in show notes, and it's well worth watching. Um, uh, if nothing, if for no other reason than to see this uh, this um, Fox News host kind of get uh, you know look like a little bit of an idiot, um, uh, thanks to the Dalai Lama playing it totally straight, because he has obviously uh, never never seen the movie uh, Caddyshack, and we will also link to the. Uh, the, the the scene in Caddyshack where, where uh, Bill Murray talks about uh, having met the Dalai Lama and uh, and 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 apparently incorrectly uh, talks about uh, how what a great golfer he is. Uh, this is awesome. I look forward to this uh, <laughs> later because I didn't I I, I had missed this uh, conversation and I love it. Um, yeah, I was uh, speaking of Caddyshack and, and Gunga Lo Gunga. Uh, I was at a, a restaurant with my kids uh, wearing my uh, Gunga Lo Gunga T-shirt, um, oh. which is yeah, it got a nice you know it's got this crest. I'll send you I'll send you a picture of it. Oh, I, I, um, I've, I've seen it. I've seen, seen it. It's a very nice looking T-shirt. It's a beautiful T-shirt. We uh, we we made T-shirts. We have we have hockey bags. Like I've, I'm on an this is an official team where mm. um, bags, as shirts. Uh, Bag shirts, we got it all. Um, stickers, decals, as 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 they're known, or uh, decils, as my seven year old son pronounces phonetically. Um, and uh, I was at this restaurant, and a guy uh, looks at my shirt and goes, "Huh, you a Caddyshack fan?" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, uh, yeah." He totally got it. He looked looked at it, uh, and he's like, "And he's like, is that a Caddyshack shirt?" And I was like, "No." And I gave him the whole history of. Um, my uh, my team and, and our captain Richard Took, um, who is also a Canadian, uh, who uh, created this team uh, about a decade ago, um, it's, and it's pronounced uh, Toke. It's uh, like, to, like, the <laughs> like that, like a like a hat. Two. I think is that, how do you I say think, that? Yeah, he he signs his emails <laughs> uh, two as in the number K uh, as in the letter. Yeah, two two K two K like Y two K. Yeah, so. Uh, Gunga la Gunga, and uh, I, yeah, that's that's a good. I, I miss this. I like I like that you. Uh, I'm gonna check this out when we're done. Thanks, thanks for that. Um, yeah, so uh, so drivers, Ireland. Um, uh, what else? Well, you know, so our our rabid listeners. I don't know if that. Please don't be offense, offended by that. I don't mean rabid in a sense like that. You are. Um, foaming or have any sort of uh illness but unless of course you like to foam in which case we're we're all we're totally in support of you foaming right right foam foam away i I just make no assumption with the with with when i say rabbit but our our fans or listeners or whatever we might want to call them um uh this is we're in a a new zone of uh food safety talk we are now a weekly show (laughs) Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, and, and before that, we were a monthly show. So I think on average, we're still right. uh, every two weeks. But uh, yeah, but, so wh- yeah, go ahead. It's a trend line. We can draw a trend line <laughs> to it two weeks in a row. Um, uh, it looks like we're trending trending down. Uh, but yeah, we uh, if you listen to After Dark uh, um, after episode number 103, um, you would know that uh, today we're recording a week after because we've got we got a lot of travel. We got stuff going on. You're going to Ireland. Um, and uh, like l- like you and I like to say, when the fans want food safety talk, we give them what they want and they want more food safety talk and they want it weekly and they want it uh, right now. So uh, in a very meta way, if you're listening to this, you're getting all of that right now. Right. And we, and we, Ben, we always give the fans exactly what they want 
unless uh, our personal or professional lives interfere, in which case they can just uh, stick it. No, yeah, no I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean that. I mean, we love you. We love you, and we do our best. I mean, that, I think that's, you know, it's like the, uh, the Boy Scout model, right? Uh, do your best. And we, we, with this podcast, Ben, we, we do our best. And sometimes our best is every week, and sometimes our best is less often than that. But, uh, so, yeah. Sometimes, uh, you feel like yeah, sometimes, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you feel like you're not. So, uh, and so I got that going for me. So I say, <laughs> so I say hey, Llama, how about, uh, how about a little something for uh, the effort, you know? Uh, oh man, uh, I uh, I'm gonna not talk in cliches this week. You know, I went back. I'm not. I'm not gonna. It's episode uh, episode 103. I I would uh, the sub name for that would be uh, Ben does cliches. And I even caught myself and said I was gonna do it a lot when I went back to listen for show notes. There were all these cliches I didn't even know I was saying. Oh my gosh, I'm a cliche factory, Don. You are. I'm I'm cl- cliche mon. It's uh, French for uh, uh, a cliche factory. <laughs> oh, I hey, you're so uh, cliche Mont, which is uh, the mountain of uh, cliches. Cliche Mont, cliche Mont, uh, Mont cliche, Mont cliche, uh, the Mont Blanc, Mont cliche, all the Mont, Mont Blanc, all the great Monts, all the great Monts. Uh, you're not going to see any Monts in uh, in Ireland. You're going to see a lot of crags, I think. Right? Uh, and, is that what the? Uh, I think it's. I think it's uh, the Emerald Isle, Ben. I think we're going to see a lot of emeralds. <sighs> I love I love me an emerald. I love I love me an emerald isle. Uh, an emerald. Uh, it, it's one of my favorite. Uh, I'd say it's a, it's a top ten gem for me. One of my favorite gems. I would. Uh, <laughs> if I uh, jade uh, onyx, uh, um, I would go with uh, pearl. Um, uh, those are those are hey, that'd uh, be my top three. You know, you know what the Emerald Isle is apparently, um, according to Wikipedia, which is never wrong. It is a it is a town in uh, North Carolina. So yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. It's on the beach. Yeah, it's it's not a town in uh, North Ontario, uh, which was last that's, episode. That's right. There <laughs> is a town pretty, in North Carolina. It's <laughs> a pretty nice, uh, a pretty nice website. Apparently, in Emerald Isle, uh, North Carolina, right now, uh, real time uh, follow up. It's uh, eighty seven degrees and mostly sunny. Emerald Isle is one of the greatest places in North Carolina <laughs> to visit. It is a beautiful um, beach town. I'm sure her. it's not as nice as the actual Emerald Isle of Ireland, but uh, I, it, you know, I, I've never been there. so It's a bit relative, Don. The Emerald Isle, it's, they're different. Uh, mm-hmm. I would say both are notable. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, that's why uh, they both have Wikipedia pages. Um, and, uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Emerald Isle, uh, North Carolina. Huh. I've been there, uh, I've been there a couple of times. I've not, uh, I've not stayed there. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, it's a cool, it's a cool spot. Go wow. and don't, don't, don't knock Emerald Isle until well, you. I've, I've, I've been to the Emerald Isle several times and I've stayed there, but, uh, by the Emerald Isle, I mean uh, Ireland. So, but, but I, I look forward to someday going to the town of Emerald Isle, uh, North Carolina. I'll take you there. Maybe we'll have our next, uh, writing buddies retreat there. Oh, I'm down. I'm down. Um, speaking, speaking of gems, mm. uh, <laughs> you didn't know we were going this direction today. Did you, do, do you have a, um, I, so I have a Sapphire, I, grandpa, uh, Sapphire covering on my watch. That's what I have. Oh yeah. Do you have uh, what do you know about the hermitite or tiger's eye or sugalite or quartz? Got it. Malachite. Is that your thing? Uh, peanut, ruby? cashew, yeah. nut. <laughs> Sorry, I could name all the nuts. All the great nuts. Um, I have heard that reference uh, a couple of times on podcasts I listened to recently. Uh, 
So we're talking, the, we're talking the movie Best in Show, which John Roderick, the bastard, does not like. Um, he was talking about it on uh, Roadwork. I don't know why. I'm very upset with that, but uh, I'll get over people it. Like, people like what they like, Don, and they like and they don't like what they don't like, and we can't uh, we can't deal with that. Or we're gonna have to deal with it anyway. I'm trying to talk about gems because <laughs> I'm not letting you. You're not letting me. So when I was a kid, my grandparents, um, my mom's parents, they. As they retired, they, uh, like many retirees, found hobbies and things to do in later in life. And one of the things was they would go um, as they they would take these like trips throughout the Midwest and Northeast United States, and they'd go for four or five days, and they'd drive down to Kentucky, and they would go to like you know gem mines along the way and buy like handfuls of gems and take them back to Ontario and polish them up in their rock tumbler. Oh, so, so I, I have I got like uh, these amethysts that uh, that have been all tumbled up for my grandparents from probably thirty years ago uh, that uh, that I hadn't thought about until we started talking about gems, and I looked at uh, the gemstone page for Wikipedia. Oh, that is that is pretty cool. I had as a kid, I had a rock tumbler. It was it was fun, um, but I don't think as, as a kid I had the patience for it. But uh, but I do I do have uh, fond memories of this little rock tumbler, which uh, would sit in the basement and would run for weeks on end, um, uh, trying to get these uh, rocks uh, tumbled. So yeah, it's it's pretty hilarious mm-hmm. uh, that I I did not. So my I didn't live with my grandparents. And so I only got to see the end product. So it would be like we would start the tumbling when I was there for one trip. And then when I returned like maybe six weeks or eight mm-hmm. weeks, mm-hmm. 12 weeks later, then there would be this uh, really shiny amethyst that I got to put in my pocket as like my lucky token as I walked around him before I would carry a pocket knife, which I did for a while. I don't know. I, I don't care. You know, you know what I carry in my pocket now, Don? My phone, mm. my keys. That's my, mm. my, lucky, my lucky charm right now is my phone. Yeah, I, I used to carry a well. I used to carry a pocket knife, um, and then uh, after the TSA took like the third one, I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, you know, because usually when you're there, um, it's too late. You've if you have checked luggage, you've already checked it. So uh, yes, yeah, so I've just stopped uh, stopped carrying a pocket knife, which is too bad. Unless not when I did when I was still doing camping with the Boy Scouts, I would I would bring uh, uh, a leather man or some other kind of knife with me. So. I do miss uh, carrying a knife, but the, you know, like I said, it's got. I've got a phone. There's no knife on my phone, but there is a flashlight. So that's there. At least there's that. Yeah, there's a flashlight. There's um, there's no corkscrew, but I have an app where I can track all the wine that I drink. <laughs> uh, Apparently, there is like, a there is a TSA approved corkscrew that you can buy that you can uh, carry on. Um, yeah. I did not know that, but uh, I did some research a while back, um, uh, and because uh, <laughs> because uh, you never know when you might need a. Take a corkscrew with you on a trip. So yeah, yeah. well, just in case you're on one of those uh, flights where they they give you the whole bottle, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so there you go, corkscrews. There's got there's uh, something sharp objects. Uh, can take a disposable razor, but uh, no swords, no swords, no thr- no thrusting weapons, which makes sense. Um, hey, so I, we talked a little bit about. Um, uh, IR guns in the last yes. uh, episode, and uh, just a, a quick update. Let me shoot my IR gun. My my office is still cold, by the way. Um, fifty nine. It's a little warmer today because you know it's like ninety eight outside, so, so it's probably just the temperature is uh, related to that. So, um, wait, so, so but, just to clarify, now, so fifty nine is the temperature of 
the grill that the cold air is coming out of. Correct. What's the temperature of the door to your office? Uh, 65. Okay. Because before I think, uh, we, you know, we wanted to get that comparison. So, yeah. Uh, the light switch, 67. <laughs> A, uh, uh, my empty coffee, uh, cup, 66. So, yeah. But I, I like, I like to monitor the grill of the air coming out. Anyway, so, uh, this is double follow up based on IR and, um, my AeroPress. Mm. Um, so I, I tweeted out a picture yesterday um, and Instagrammed a, a little a little picture of me uh, taking the temperature in my office uh, at 176.5 degrees Fahrenheit of uh, this water that I was going to put in this AeroPress. And my message was, this specific water temperature, hashtag AeroPress, and counterculture coffee stuff is getting ridiculous, uh, but hashtag best coffee I've had and hashtag worth the effort. Um, so have you... I, I'm like I'm still enamored with this with, with this AeroPress travel thing. Have you taken yours traveling? Have we? I, I don't know. Like I think I've asked you this, but I can't remember the answer. I, do you take it traveling? I have not. <clears throat> I do. Um, these days, I've been not traveling very far because I'm not able to drive. So I've been making a lot of <clears throat> a lot of AeroPress coffee at home. Um, but no, I have not taken it with me to travel. I um, that seems awfully fiddly to me. Yeah. It seems like a lot of trouble. Now, I did get uh, a little burr grinder that would actually fit right inside the AeroPress so I could take beans, I could take my burr grinder, I could take my AeroPress. But honestly, most of the places I travel have Starbucks, and I, I like Starbucks, and I, I also – you know, it's it's just on the edge of too fiddly for me to grind my own beans and to make my own coffee at home. Um, it's like just on the I can handle it side of fiddliness at home, but to take it traveling, you know, that is a uh, just it's it's too it's a little too fiddly for me. I mean, I I do have some things that I take with me when I'm traveling, um, which which you know take up some weight. Like I, I this you may laugh at this, um, but since I got onto this fitness kick and tracking my weight, I actually bring a travel scale with me, um, so I can I can weigh myself every day. But but I love so it. Yeah. so I mean talk about fiddliness. But for me, the bringing the AeroPress on a trip is is too is too fiddly. And and so I've. I- like I took it to Canada with us. Um, I am going to start taking it places because I really I'm I'm really into this coffee. But um, the reason why I ask is it has to do with this IR gun because I I travel carry on everywhere. So now I'm like going to take an IR thermometer <laughs> with me because I can't take a probe thermometer. Oh and right. Now- <clears throat> Right, like, because that, because you know, going back to our like no thrusting weapons, including fencing foils, um, there's nothing specifically here in sharp objects that says you can't take a probe thermometer, but it, but you can't take a meat cleaver. So I'm thinking that maybe a probe thermometer is something that they would not like me uh, to also take on a, um, uh, you know, uh, anywhere. You can take now. You can take screwdrivers that are less than seven inches in length. So maybe I can take a probe thermometer. Anyway, and, and you know, speaking of that, I did. I was traveling quite. A while ago, months ago, when the guy in front of me going through the x-ray thing had like a whole bunch of really long screwdrivers in his bag and they stopped him and they made him take them out. And Did uh, they measure them? I think they, they, like, they, they might have measured him, and I think maybe he got to keep some of them. And he, but anyway, it was uh, it was it was quite bizarre, and I was very much a head scratcher. But uh, yeah, so really strange. That's fantastic. Well, so anyway, I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna try this next. Uh, next, when I go to IAFP, I'm gonna bring my AeroPress. 
Cool. I'm going to try it. Yeah. How, I mean, heavy, I'm how heavy is the thermometer, though? That would seem to be like a lot of trouble to carry that. Oh, uh, no. It's like, a, I don't know. It says it's about the same weight as my phone. It's oh, it's really bigger. light. Okay. Yeah. It's not, it's for, not like a. I'll take for, a picture. Well, yeah. Well, just note. for the sake of uh, show notes, uh, let's uh, just tell me the exact model number and we'll link to it in case anybody it, wants to uh, get one. Yeah. It's a Spur Scientific 800101. Eight zero zero one zero one. It's Spurs. S P E R. Oh well, that wouldn't have found it then. Okay. And then I'm gonna. You're gonna see a little picture of this. Yeah. So this is what uh, this is what I'm taking. I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna try this up, and it's uh, it's pretty good. I don't even know where we got these. Um. Anyway, that's uh, uh. Yeah. So so anyway, thermometers. Uh. What else? What else do I have? There we well, go. Yeah. Little. I will. I'm not sure what you're looking at, but I assume that you're looking at a website. Uh, <laughs> just, look at, just look at that. Podcasts in the theater yeah. of mind. Uh, it's not one of these English or there it is. How much? Uh, 55 bucks. Yeah. How get about one, that? Get one of these. So, uh, and, get two. Uh, just, 55 bucks, get two. Give one to a friend. Did you see, did you see uh, uh, ac- description? Accurate IR at a reasonable price. How about that? There you go. Uh, hey, speaking of stuff that I've texted you, uh huh. Um, guess what you can buy at the Apple Store, Don? Guess what you can buy? Oh, can you buy a sous vide machine? Yeah, an immersion circulator. How about that? At the Apple Store. How about that? I was uh, so uh, over the weekend. Um, I uh, took my my family to the mall, uh, Crabtree Valley Mall. One of my uh, I'm a mall rat. I think I've talked about this in the past. It's less exciting now because it's not like it used to be i would go when i was in university at the university of guelph i would go to the stone road mall and uh as like a thing to do we would just walk around and (laughs) and bet this is this will totally totally um show how degenerative a gambler i am um we I, a couple of my friends would walk around following people and bet on what stores they would go into next oh that sounds like a fun or, game it was a great game it was a way uh, we'd do it for uh, a dollar a, 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 a guess huh and yeah um so that was it was a, I enjoyed that game quite a bit. Uh but so we that was like a thing that I did was we would go uh go to uh, the mall, hang out, real like and this is after uh, Kevin Smith's epic movie uh, Mall Rats and I would just, would just hang out there. Um so I don't do that as much uh mainly because I have other things to do and I don't find it as relaxing and I also have uh the Amazon and uh the internet where I do 99% of my shopping now. But every once in a while, I do go to the mall, and I go to three places in the Crabtree Valley Mall. Uh, one, we eat at the Cheesecake Factory, and we eat there. It's like our place to, to like for a special special thing. Uh, two, I go to the Apple Store, and three, I go to the Lego Store. And, and usually in that um, – order where we will go to the cheesecake factory we will get our buzzer uh, and get in line for a seat and then we will i will take the boys and we will uh, spend time at both those other stores as we wait for our uh, table to become available so uh, last week i was there and a precision cooker uh i saw it uh it is a sous vide device from innova and uh it's advertises on the on the front of it come home to the best meal ever 
And uh, on the back, um, it's uh, the products. It's only 199 bucks. So I didn't buy one. I'm going to uh, to to test it out and see what we can do uh, in in our like uh, kitchen observation thing that we're building here. But um, it says this is the, once the best kept secret of professional chefs. Sous vide cooking is now available for the home kitchen. Your precision cooker Wi-Fi makes it even easier to cook the perfect meal whenever and wherever. And uh, it's an immersion circulator that you put just on the outside of a water-filled pot, which is great. It's got a little clamp on it. Um, you put your food, you put your ingredients into a food-safe bag, seal and place into pot, start it from anywhere via Wi-Fi, and then enjoy. Uh, kind of a fun one. I, I guess here's my here's my, my like initial thing. This is me thinking about how things might go wrong. Don, you know you know about cook. Uh, 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 slow cooker cooking, crock pot I, cooking. I do, I do. So it's it, here's the here's the thing that is very popular on the internet. Um, as a a parent of of two and who does a lot of cooking and uh, family stuff, and we got all these things going on. I often, usually in the winter, maybe once a week, we'll do some sort of uh, slow cooker crock pot cooking where I put something like say some pork shoulder. And into this slow slow cooker and uh, uh, cook it uh, all day and leave it, set it and forget it, as uh, the famous Ron Pope says. Uh, and uh, you know, come home and it smells great. Maybe we do it with pot roast. Maybe uh, maybe some chicken fajita or uh, chicken enchiladas, where I put some chicken breast in there with some salsa. I mean, lots of different things. I, I know from uh, validating. Uh, not in a in a study that I've published anywhere, but for following and being worried about the temperatures of my product that's in there, I know that my um, my my uh, crockpot gets up well above 160 degrees, um, and in fact, is most of the time in the 170 degree range uh, when it's on low, and 180 degrees, 185 when it's on high. Um, depending on, on the product, and it takes some time to cook it, but there's a lot of moisture, and it, it cooks actually relatively quick up to that to that temperature, depending on how much meat's in there. So I put it in there. I, I literally don't worry about it, and, and I know that it's going to cook somewhere in that 170 range for a, quite some time, maybe six or seven hours, and it gets a really good flavor and breaks down uh, tough pieces of meat. Now, I, got, I have a problem with maybe starting my flank steak that I'm only going to cook for two hours in my sous vide machine and um, drawing some sort of a vacuum, maybe if I like use the um, method that um, Merlin, uh, Merlin man, when he was on our show said he doesn't use, which is like taking a Ziploc bag and then like drawing a straw and sucking out all the air um, and then leaving it in the pot all day and uh, setting my immersion circulator to cook it for two hours, starting right two hours before I come home. I don't, I mean, I, I just, I don't know what the, um, if we would have an anaerobic environment and if it would be a problem and if it would work. And I would worry. I, I don't know. I guess I worry about the the risk a little bit of like leaving my meat in in a pot of uh, room temperature water until uh, eight eight hours later when my immersion circulator kicks on. What are your What are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's funny. <clears throat> You should mention this because I was thinking that there was a, something that came up recently where we talked about this, but it wasn't with you. It was with a talk that I gave um, on uh, mathematical modeling and consumer food safety, which is a which is a talk that I gave to the uh, National 
um, extension specialists. Uh, I forget what they're they're called, but it's a group of people, extension specialists like you and I, that deal with consumer consumer food safety stuff. And um, this actually came up. So and so, I'm also glad that you mentioned um, the the episode Food Safety Talk uh, 79, uh, where Merlin Mann talked about. Um, sous vide cooking. I think this Anova cooker is, uh, is is one that he has, or at least he has one from that same uh, from that same company. And it's certainly one that that he talked. It's, he's, we had a great conversation with him about sous vide cooking, and so I would refer people back to that if they haven't listened to it already. But w- this issue came up. Um, with respect to this talk, because uh, there is actually this is another Merlin Man tie-in. There's a, a gentleman um, uh, uh, who goes by Sands Point on Twitter, who actually was one of the first uh, people to write in to back to work and, and ask for productivity advice. And we've become friends on the internet, and we follow each other on Twitter. And I was just sitting on Twitter one day, and uh, this this guy, uh, Rich Anderson, tweeted out so cooked some marinara in the slow cooker, except I don't think it finished the eight-hour cook cycle. Safe to eat. Now, this is not somebody asking me for advice. This is just somebody that I follow, just just sort of tweeting out uh, generic information. And I'm like, oh my gosh, uh, this is a perfect example of, uh, of, of how Twitter is great and how I can maybe give some advice. And it turns out was also really useful for incorporating into this talk. So, so that's, his, um, that's his question out to the, to the Twitterverse. And my answer, uh, of course, is it depends. <laughs> Do you have any time temperature data? And he says uh, nine hours, 80-degree apartment, some condensation inside the lid, no animal products. And so so this is fantastic, right? This is usually more information than you get from the average consumer. Um, so he actually did have some useful information. Uh, and so my, my response is, well, if it was pathogen-free at time zero, and you might expect that marinara sauce would be pathogen-free, it would still be pathogen-free because spontaneous generation doesn't happen, right? And so his response is, right. I'll, I'll take that as an endorsement. And then um, <laughs> That's uh, tweet part one. The tweet yeah. part one, right. Um, and, and then I said, uh, that said... Even with the acidic pH of tomato sauce, nine hours at 80 degrees Fahrenheit is bad news. I wouldn't come over for dinner, right? And so that's the other side of the risk equation. I'm sure we could take the pH of tomato sauce. We could run some mathematical models. And I bet that after nine hours at 80 degrees Fahrenheit, if you had one salmonella cell there, uh, you would have more salmonella cells at the end of that. Again, I haven't done the math, but, but I suspect that would be true. And again, my, the key, the key point there is I wouldn't come over for dinner. And of course, Rich's answer to that is, or not, uh, and then, like I said, uh, as I said, like I always say, uh, it depends and it's complicated. Um, and then he says, uh, I think this might get tossed. Damn. And I'm said, and then I said, so sorry, but I would hate for you to get sick. And I really would, especially if uh, you're taking food safety advice from me over, over Twitter. So, um, so yeah, so the, this, this issue of slow cooker safety and how we communicate to people is, is an important one. And in fact, if I think back to some of the very first questions that I answered more than 25 years ago as an extension specialist was around slow cooker safety. And we, we, the science, I guess the science is probably advanced. I'm not sure that our advice regarding slow cookers have advanced. I do remember that uh, back in the day there were some, uh, you know, if you buy a certain model of slow cooker, you want to be sure to sort of test it with some water, <clears throat> some cold water and make sure it gets up to such and such a temperature in a certain amount of time. But I really do worry about these kind of scenarios like the one that that Richard 
tweeted about and like the one that you're discussing where you're trusting technology to work behind the scenes to monitor control and monitor temperature and then when things go wrong if you don't have data what do you do and unfortunately when you don't have data you know you 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 when in doubt throw it out right and even if you do have data well the average consumer is not going to you know know enough to plug in a mathematical model and do that that risk calculation or that yeah that risk assessment that that i would do um uh in those situations so it's it's a complicated issue and and you know as a guy who uses technology all the time um Sometimes people, you know, laugh when I say I don't trust technology because you know you, you, you can't, right? You, you have to, you have to always have a, a backup, right? You don't, you don't trust that your computer hard disk is not going to fail. Um, you assume that it is going to fail, and you have multiple backups, right? So that's that's kind of my thought on technology. And so if you're going to use technology to run a slow cooker or to uh, to run a sous vide um, immersion um, uh, heater device, um, you want to have a backup, or at least if you don't have backup, you want to have data. So that's my that's my long answer to your relatively short question. That's that's good, and I. I, I I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> other than uh, other than um, I, um, as you were you're talking, I, I went to look at uh, USDA's uh, advice on slow cookers and food safety because often we default to that. Um, I say we, I, I would say the the world of food safety educators will be like, oh, what did USDA say about this? And they actually have a fairly nice. Um, uh, question and answer page here, which is not always the case for for USDA for consumers. This this one's pretty pretty good. They talk about is the slow cooker safe? Yes, um, it can, it can be, and it talks about different temperatures. Uh, they talk about starting with safe ingredients. They don't want. They suggest uh, something that we haven't talked about, which is um, not using these slow cookers with frozen, uh, because that will uh, potentially. Um, make it so the you know the food is in that that danger zone for a longer uh, time uh, than what we would uh, want it to be, and maybe have uh, depending on how long and how thick and how frozen it was, may end up with some like toxin formation. Um, but th- then it kind of it it falls apart a little bit when they say things like use the right amount of food because they don't tell me what how. And this is I, mm. I, I like I, you know I like what your um, I, I like your story because it's it's kind of where. I'm hoping to um, to move some of the stuff that that we're doing and your your conversation with Sands Point, Rich Anderson about this, and the, you know, coupled with what's here on this USDA page is what I think where where I think we we need to go with with extension type things is when people you know like actively monitoring for these like. Um, non-directed questions that people are asking in food safety, and you know, you happen to see um, San, you know, Rich Anderson's question because you follow him. But there are ways for us to track and and do active searches uh, around things that people are saying and questions that they might be asking on Twitter and other areas that we could maybe chime in on um, if we had the resources and we're looking to uh, looking for these questions and and then directing people to this science-based answer like what i would love to see in this in this usda sheet is using the right amount of food that links to some sort of more in-depth answer of what the right amount is how big how thick what temperature do i need to worry about is there a difference between you know 
pork and poultry and beef, which I think the answer is no. But but that's the like you you know saying to someone use the right amount of food doesn't tell you well what is the right amount. Um, and, and they say, you know, consult the instruction booklet, but, but let's, let's give them the, let's, if people want to know more information about this and want to make a really practical decision, like whether they should throw out their marinara sauce, let's give them here are the, you, you tell us the parameters. We'll tell you what, where we would see the parameters falling on, you know, where the risks are, uh, and, and you make a decision, but you got to be able to like have some, some sort of metrics, something to you know to, to measure. And if someone doesn't have that, then then being able to to say like like you know like you said, um, yeah, I don't know without the without any sort of data. So let's err on the side of caution. Yeah. Um, and that's and you know I, I just feel like that's where we need to go with this kind of stuff. And it's it's harder than running the um, USDA meat and poultry hotline. And not that that's not that that's not a useful um, service. Uh, and it's the start. It's it's the surface kind of stuff. But let's get into let's share let's share some of the share our work and show people how we made this decision because that may convince them more to to reduce risk than than not. And I'll I'll give you like let me let me just pull up a an email string um, about some green beans that I got because it's preservation. Well, while, so you while, go ahead. While, yeah, while you're doing that, let me just give a little bit more. And we'll, when, when, the, uh, when my talk to the National Consumer Food Safety Specialists Group is posted, um, we will link to it. It's not, it's not posted yet. But, but your discussion about how do we give advice and default advice reminded me of the first part of my talk, which where I talked about the work that we've done with modeling and the work that I do in extension and, and asked the question, what does risk analysis have to do with extension? And I made the point that much of what we know from science falls into risk assessment. How fast does Listeria monocytogenes grow in deli meat? How quickly does pathogenic E. coli die in hamburger when you cook it at a certain temperature? How effective is a hand wash at removing salmonella? But, and you and I have talked about this before on the podcast as well, much of what we as extension specialists are asked to provide advice about really is risk management. How long can I leave out this potato salad at a picnic? The power's been out in my freezer. Should I throw the food away? Um, how, what the link, when and for how long should I wash my hands? And so that leads to the question of what is safe. And, and again, this, this came up in some consulting I was doing recently as well. Um, what is safe is a risk management question. There's no such thing as absolute safety. Is a six uh, log reduction good? Yes. Is it safe? Well, it's, not, it's safer than five, but it's, yeah. not, as, it's not as safe as seven. Right? Depends and what so we start. It, depends what we started at. Depends what you started right? at, and also what your tolerance for risk is. Are, are yep. you yep. are you willing to tolerate one illness a day, one illness a month, one illness a year? Um, and often we don't even have all the data, right? We don't know. And again, I've been talking with a, a company about doing some some work in this area, and they don't have prevalence and they don't have concentration. They have a pretty good idea of the effectiveness of their process, um, but they want to do a risk assessment. And it's like, well, I would love to do a risk assessment for you, but until you guys have prevalence and concentration data on the raw stream of product coming in, I can't tell you – I mean I can – we can make assumptions like, like uh, Michelle and I did in our, our leafy greens risk assessment. We assume certain prevalence, certain concentration. We let those vary as user inputs into the risk assessment and then we, we, we studied the, the risk uh, from there. So, so – and l- let me just wrap it up and I'll go back to you to talk about green beans. Um, how the heck 
in extension, do we ever help anyone, right? Given this disconnect between risk management, which is what we're asked about, and risk assessment, which is what we as scientists nominally know about. And of course, we have safe harbors, right? And one of the safe harbors, which we just I just discussed a few seconds ago, was when in doubt, throw it out. Um, uh, another safe harbor is foods should be at room temperature for no more than two hours, which is conservative with respect to the FDA food code, right? The model food code says with, with various caveats and, and, and disclaimers, four hours. Um, we also say wash your hands for 20 seconds. And is, that, is, that, is there a science base behind that? Well, there's science and people have studied um, uh, uh, time, but no, I, again, 20 seconds is not as safe as 15 seconds and it's safer than 25 or 30 seconds. And again, depending on how you monitor and how you measure, you may or you may not be able to prove statistical equivalence or statistical difference. And then, of course, another great example of, uh, of a, a safe uh, harbor is the USDA home canning guide, right? And so we direct people to that um, when they have questions. Um, but and let me just wrap this up here. There, there are two problems with safe harbors, right? Number one, they limit flexibility. Uh, and so we, I would love to be able to go to somebody who has a, a, a home canning recipe that doesn't follow the USDA home canning guide, and I would like to be able to tell them whether their recipe – what to what – I can't tell them whether it's safe because there's no such thing as safe, right? But I can tell them whether it's safer or less safe or of unknown safety relative to, let's say, an equivalent USDA recipe. Um, the other problem with safe harbors – and it took me a long time to come to this – is they create – the illusion of certainty, and they create the illusion that we have absolute control of risk, which we don't, right? Certainly, leaving a food out at room temperature for two hours is not going to appreciably increase the risk, but because of what we know about science. But is that good information? Well, I guess if people need to know what to do, it's good to tell them two hours is okay. But, but you know, there's all sorts of shades of gray in the world. And so I'm, I'm constantly – and again, this has been good fodder for the podcast in many, many past episodes – is how do we sort of reconcile that difference between risk assessment and risk management? So anyway, that, so I, I'm, I'm going to resist the temptation to re-give this entire talk. But, but I think it's very <laughs> it's interesting that, uh, that, that these sort of issues have come up and, and that we have, we're talking about it today. They they come up every day, Don. Like yeah. they this is yeah they, this is um a, and not I'm not telling you anything you don't you don't know. This is I mean really where you and I are at the heart of what our what our job is. I think is to help uh, uh, navigate what we know from the literature and what someone presents us in some form of data and help them understand what the risk and consequences are of their risk management decision, whether that be, and I'm going to give you a few examples here, whether that be green beans or whether that be um, rhubarb jelly or making crepes and stacking them up. Uh, these are all things that just in the last two days that I've, that, that, uh, that have come sort of to me. And, and I, I, I feel like um, my, my role now, my goal is to not be the gatekeeper for this stuff, but it's to help train extension agents and students to help them look at the stuff and make the decision, make, make decisions based on the skills of being able to, to be, um, to navigate risk, you know, risk assessment data and, and, and present something so someone can make a decision. So, so here's the, the green beans one. Um, uh, 
came, came from an extension agent said had a caller who said she put her green beans in yesterday and that steam was escaping from around her pressure cooker. I asked her to check the gasket, but she said it was fairly new. She said the pressure cooker never reached the amount of pressure she needed, but she left the green beans in the boiling hot water all night, and when she got up this morning, they were sealed. I was thinking that they still may not be safe since they didn't reach the appropriate amount of pressure, and then she just needs to freeze them, but I wanted to double-check. Is it too late to freeze them, and are there any ideas on what could be going wrong with her pressure cooker lid? Could it be bent? Like a whole bunch here, right? So first of all, we've got a pressure cooker or a pressure canner. Is it a terminology issue? Is the terminology between um, the person who's calling and the extension agent? Is it the extension agent trans, you know, just uh, writing, transposing what it is? So that's the first question that I ask about is, are we talking about a pressure canner or a cooker? Because canners and cookers do different things. A pressure cooker is really not the right type of equipment to can um, foods in that are low acid that we need a specific pressure that we have to get to because a pressure cooker is really just about cooking for tenderness and meat. And it's not the same type of consistent equipment. So I ask about that. Um, I then kind of highlight that if she left, you know, she said I left, she left her green beans in boiling hot water all night. And I was like, well, she probably didn't boil the water bath, the beans all night, because the processing liquid would have boiled off. So maybe it was in boiling hot water for a minute, you know, 10 minutes, and then it got cooler over time. So we have this potential that that we've got this anaerobic environment. We definitely, um, based on the, the question, the, the product probably, those green beans probably did not get up to 230 or 240 degrees, which we need to uh, inactivate that bot spore. Um, and so my my um, estimation of what's happening here is that the pro- based on this information, the products are underprocessed. They're low acid, and they've likely been in an environment or an anaerobic environment for an undetermined amount of time at an undetermined temperature. So I would say that they're high risk for botoxin formation and and would be disposed of. And freezing is not going to do anything. So that's that's my kind of answer back to to our agent. Um, the agent, um, uh, then, um, goes, this is my favorite sort of wrap up for the conversation. Um, uh, the agent, um, or it says that it was a pressure canner. Uh, she said it boiled for another hour and a half and then she cut the stove off and left those, uh, the, uh, beans in the, um, uh, you know, in the can, in the jar on the stovetop overnight, um, in, so a warmer environment. Uh, and then, uh, in the end, the, uh, client caller individual decided that she wanted to go with her neighbor's advice to reprocess them in a boiling water bath. <laughs> That's fine. Don't invite me over. I mean, I guess, yeah. I guess, I guess since bot toxin is heat labile, um, it, yeah. that's probably okay. And if, if I was really, really hungry, like on a, like often I'll, 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 with these canning things, I'll say, well, if I'm on a desert Island, right. Um, and there's no food, but I, you know, I, that's great. If you want to go with the advice of your neighbor over uh, an educated professional, go for it. But, um, I would say, man, no, I don't think so. I'll pass. And, and I'll what I, a pass. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I agree. I think that that boiling water bath, like if we think about the, 
uh, what types of environment have we created? If there was bot toxin that was formed in that short amount of time that it sat on the stove, you know, the overnight, yeah, then a boiling water bath is probably going to take care of the bot toxin. Now I worry more that these products still have not been processed at a high enough temperature to inactivate any spores and any spores that didn't turn mm-hmm. into vegetative cells now are going to sit in someone's pantry for a while, right? Like yep. it, potentially, potentially like that's, that, it's all a guess, right? But that's what we do with risk management decisions. So, um, you know, so the agent says, I strongly advise her to not do this, but she seemed to, to be convinced to follow the advice of her neighbor. And, and that, this this is a, a a larger question. It really gets down to the heart of what what you talked about um, with the extension specialist and extension group, and where I think we need we need to go. The thing is, neighbors are really credible, right? And I don't say that in a trite way. Like your neighbor who might do something, <coughs> excuse me, over and over again, like boiling water bath, green beans, and has done it for a long time and seems to have a lot of experience in it and hasn't died yet, right? Like in the the Terminal, right, right. What, yeah, as yeah. n equals one, that's probably in someone's mind maybe a much more credible source sometimes than someone you call at a university who may be seen as an expert enough that you called them, but doesn't give you the right answer or the answer that you were looking for, which was, can I safely repro- refreeze these? And now I have conflicting uh, information, and. I'm going to go with the person who I live next door to and seems to think that this is an okay thing to do. And, and, and we're, I can't, we can't lament that and say, Oh, that person's an idiot. I can. Well, I just did. Sorry. You can, you can, I, I'm not going to lament it. I think it says we haven't done a good enough job at being the right expert at the right time to be credible to this individual. Well, right. Well, yeah, and that that is unfortunate. Yeah, I guess I guess you're right. Yeah, it, it's a systematic issue that's probably larger than than I, like it's it's that we you know maybe we didn't give this person enough um, science and explain it. Maybe this person has had a bad experience in the past and said, well, they said that my lawn was going to not grow and it did grow. You know what? Some other extension, like, you know, that's the thing is the the extension system is wrapped up in like everything that we do and and it's hard to excise different things so i i mean i look at this and think uh, our we have to do a better job as a system and we're not i don't i don't drink the kool-aid or believe that we're the most trusted credible unbiased source of information because if we were this person wouldn't go to their neighbor and maybe this is right. my equals one but we this is part of a bigger a bigger thing where maybe four or five years ago i think i told you in a, before we were doing a podcast that I was on a crusade to like fix extension and you're like, yeah, you can't, it's not possible. Um, <laughs> so sorry for that, but yeah, no, but you're no, right. All you can do is fix what you do. Right. Uh, right. That's uh, but, all I can. But yeah, yes. But, but yeah. And, 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 and yeah, and it's, and the extension got the way it got. Um, uh, and it's been that way for a long time and, and we're, we can try to do better. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I guess you should still try to fix extension, but don't don't I'm get too dis- don't get too disappointed if you can't, right? I won't. Yeah, it's like it's but, like uh, submitting a grant proposal or a manuscript. It's like sometimes they're just going to get uh, rejected. So, and that's the way it is. And you, and that's you can't. The way it is. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so you said something else that I wanted to come back to. Circle back around, as as they say, um, and, and talking about um, 
uh, two hours versus four hours and science-based versus mm. overly conservative. And, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to throw another example out for you on this, and that's the, the quote, danger zone, mm. which Carl Custer is, you know, one, yeah, I think he listens sometimes, and I don't think he listens not all the time, but one of, one, one of like, um, the, uh, one of the people who, who, I think just is really passionate about what we do and is, has, is in a place, um, in retirement where he likes to, um, engage all, you know, all the time, which I, I want him to continue to do and saying, you know what? I, we, we had, we had this conversation 20 years ago and the science is the same and it's, and it's, we're always going to be fighting this. And, and, the you know, the danger zone he's, he's talked about, um, via email to me is really, it's two different danger zones, right? It's, it, it's the difference, um, at, you know, where we have really high risk, at certain thing at, at a certain temperature, um, you know, in the 120, one, uh, you know, 110 degree range, uh, or sorry, one, uh, uh, let me go look at this, um, here in the, uh, 85 to 115 range. And then we have dangerous. That's a little higher than that. And then it's dangerous in several hours. It's a little low. And I'm going to send you a link to food safety magazine, um, an article that Frank Bryan wrote about 14, 12 years ago. Um, that where he deconstructed the danger zone and, and it comes down to this difference between, is it 135 and 41? Is it 40 and 140? Is it two hours or four hours? All the stuff that, that when someone is looking to make a risk management decision and they just want you to tell them which one it is, it's kind of like, well, it's all of that stuff. And it's, uh, there are increments about it. And we, I, I am um, consistently defaulting to where I have the best kind of science and that there are references. And I'm even in my consumer type messages, I'm using four hours and 41 and 135 because I'm confident in that, that data. But really, like it's, you know, pulling, pulling back a little bit, um, as, as Frank Bryan, uh, uh, explains and as Carl Custer has, has kind of told, you know, mentioned a, a bunch of times, it's not about the danger zone. It's about dangerous in a few weeks, dangerous in a few days, dangerous in a couple hours, very dangerous in a few hours, dangerous in right now. And that's fascinating to me, right? Like that's, that's science and that provides this complicated type world to present back to somebody and say, you know what? It's not. I can't give you like a perfect answer here because there are all these things that it, all these factors that it depends on. And I just expanded the the tagline of food safety talk of it's complicated and it depends. Yeah, and no, this is a brilliant uh, this is a brilliant piece by Frank Bryan. I'm just looking at it now. It's it's really well done. And let me just share two examples which we may have talked about before. That again, consulting examples that came across my desk. Uh, one was a company that uh, slaughters beef, and they had a cooler failure, and so uh, the product went from say 40 um, up to uh, in one case up to 50. I think, in the other case, up to 65, and then cooled back down to 40 within a certain amount of time. And of course, as always, they don't have uh, detailed times and temperatures. They typically have a starting point, a time and a temperature. They have another time and a temperature, another time and a temperature. So again, I, you know, my default is to do a straight line uh, uh, interpolation. Uh, you can plug that into a mathematical model. You can you can select the various uh, relevant target pathogens. In this case, probably Salmonella and E. coli. And what you discover is that you can actually 
um, have a rather significant deviation where the product gets up to 55 or 60 degrees Fahrenheit over several hours and then cools back down over several hours. And really, if you assume that the organisms are in lag phase, which that is a that's a d- assumption that that's been shown relatively uh, universally true to be true again and again. Guess what? You get very little pathogen growth. You get a, uh, an unmeasurable increase in the population of pathogens if you if you could measure and you could actually do those experiments. And even even if you assume no lag phase, if you see the Im- organisms immediately start growing according to that temperature profile, um, you see less than a one log increase. Which again, I can always point to the the wonderful NACMIF challenge study document as saying, well, guess what? A one log increase is what most microbiologists agree is probably the minimum increase that you could reliably measure given the uncertainty in microbiological measuring uh, techniques and, and orders of magnitude, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was one example. And the other example was a, com- was a company that was making a bacon product. And this, this is a, uh, like a smoked bacon product with nitrites and with salt. Um, and they basically uh, they smoke it, and during the smoking process, they bring it up right into that that really you know danger zone plus that that Carl I forget what he called it, but that that danger zone plus that Carl Custer likes to talk about, right? The 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 eighty to uh, to, to one twenty, which from a perfringence point of view is highly risky if you cooked and are cooling, but also from from a salmonella uh, and staph uh, and E. coli growth, if you're if you're looking at at growth, is also highly risky and. And basically what I said was, look, you, you really don't have very good control of your process. You've told me a couple of times about the salt content and you've changed that. And, and now you've told me that you think you have nitrite, but maybe you're not sure of the nitrite level. And again, you've given me these various smoking runs with, with poor control of the process. What I can tell you is if you do these things, right, and you have the salt to be at least this and the nitrate to be at least this and the models are true and um, and, and you can get it a Past the op, the trick with this is that they don't they don't want the product to become too. Um, uh, they need they need the product to not be too cooked uh, because it, it, the, eventually it's cooked by the consumer, but they don't want it to be too cooked because then when they go to slice it and package it, it falls apart, right? And so the trick is they've got to get it past the optimum for the pathogen growth, and then but not so and close to the, the limits to growth for the organism, but not so high that they actually cook the product. And so, again, I ended up giving them some advice, and part of the advice was just get control of your damn process because it matters whether it's 1% salt or 2% salt. It matters, matters whether it's 0 ppm nitrite or 10 ppm nitrite or 20 ppm nitrite. And, and guess what? It matters what your temperature control is. And so, uh, but, but again, hopefully successfully managed to convey those nuances to those two companies that both had product that was outer temperature control for relatively similar amounts of time, but one where you've just lost uh, refrigeration and the other where you're basically putting it into and through this this high end of the danger zone. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating the way that this this keeps coming up uh, again and again for for so many things. And I'm glad that we can I'm glad that we can talk about it. And thanks for sharing that Frank uh, Brian link, by the way, uh, that that's 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 a good even though it's 2004, it's a good read. And I would encourage uh, folks listening to to check it out. It's I, I love it. I love this paper. And it becomes the one um, that when someone asks me how I came up with my why I follow the danger zone, I shoot them this and say, here's all the nuances, right? Like, and, and here's why I know that USDA has made the decision uh, on their numbers. And here's why FDA has made the decision on their numbers. It's all here. And it's all comes back to 
you know, the theme of today's discussion and maybe the theme of the podcast, which is, uh, in general, which is making risk management decisions and, and giving, um, setting a threshold, right? Like that's the, that's the other thing is you and I aren't in the business of setting personal risk or business risk thresholds. That's, that's someone else's, um, above my pay grade, as I like to say, although although I'm often asked to comment about it. Right. Um, and, and, and what I try to do is to not as very clearly, uh, especially, you know, if there's a liability issue is not talk about whether something is safe or not. It's only based on these assumptions. Is it compliant with the regulations or, or it, or it is, you know, the risk relative to other things that we know are, are acceptable is it's the same or it's less. Right. So, you know, it, and, and, and again, I think that that is something, too, that probably more extension specialists it's a, – it's a change in mindset, right? You have to – It is. You have, you, and, and again, and, and, and talking about it with you on the podcast has been so helpful for me, too, in refining it is, is thinking about like, okay, so is this a risk assessment question or is it a risk management question? And then what science, what risk assessment data, what scientific data go into the risk management question? And then how can I frame it in such a way that the person – can make an educated decision because ultimately they are the risk manager, right? The consumer is the risk manager. The company is the risk manager. I am just the the science guy. I'm just the risk assessor. Um, but I'm going to try to give you the full benefit of my experience and also show you where the the weaknesses are, where the where the where the problems are, what the key, what the critical assumptions are, uh, et cetera. And, and what the um, what the mismanagement, mismanagement, what the risk management options might be. As well, because right. not everyone is is in tune to to that uh, side of things, and I want to do a little bit of follow up because we talked in episode one hundred three um, about a, um, a company that called me that was making some frozen vegetables and had some you know listeria questions and and that kind of stuff, and um, that that same uh, company uh, called you know we had a conversation with them again this week, and they um, we got into a different conversation about frozen fruits where. There isn't uh, like the risk management decision on frozen fruits is did your producer that you bought it from manage things correctly in the field? Because I'm not worried about listeria at the same, you know, maybe I should be. Uh, let me go back. Maybe maybe Listeria is there, but I'm more worried just on historical outbreaks with Noro and Hepe. Yep. And I can't do much because I'm not heat treating it, and there's no wash step because I'll have a really awful product in the end. And you and, and Doug and I have talked about this on on email. Um, Doug, Doug and I, we are like totally converted to this probably over protective uh, situation with frozen vegetable or with frozen fruit specifically. Which I practiced this last night when I had a bowl full of frozen berries and frozen peaches, um, where. I microwave them and I stir them and I use a thermometer and I make sure that they get, I mean, literally above 190 degrees. Mm-hmm. And I'm cool with that because I like a little bit of hot uh, fruit on my, on my ice cream. It's like, uh, it's, I'm, I'm cool. It's like a, it's like a apple pie. Well, a fruit pie thing, but, but I am that the, the more that I've looked at this and not that that's just my risk management decision. So this company called and said, okay, so um, we, how do we – what are our options for managing you – know, first of all, what, what do you think the hazards are with frozen uh, fruits and what are our options? And I was like, well, 
I really think it's about water on the on the farm and handling on the farm. And if I was in your position, I would love to have my uh, uh, employees that are handling with their hands any of that uh, product in my facility and my my farmers. I think they probably should be vaccinated for Hep A. And you and I have talked about that mm-hmm. you know, cost benefit uh, situation. But if I'm a buyer and I can dictate that, then I would go ahead and ask for it. Um, and, and in the absence of that, I want to know that they have a program that um, is is effective at keeping bare hands off of off of berries, um, and that there's glove use, that they have employee health policies, that they ensure that someone who's going to be harvesting is out if they have uh, illness, that they're out and not harvesting for 72 hours. These are all like probably pretty impractical things, but that's the best risk management options that I can think of for that type of product. Yep, absolutely. And we will, again, link to the uh, really good JFP article, uh, Cost Effectiveness of Vaccinating Food Service Workers Against Hep A Infection, uh, which is by uh, a bunch of folks, um, including uh, Steve Grover. Um, who's um, uh, worked, I think, at the time for the National Restaurant Association uh, back in uh, – the article was published back in 2000. And what they concluded was that there there wouldn't be – there would be a tremendous public health benefit, but there really wouldn't be a food safety benefit. Um, but it's probably the right thing to do for the workers. And so, um, again, um, uh, it's worth uh, worth reading that article. And, and yeah, I think hep, vaccinating against hep A is probably just a good idea if you can afford it. Yeah. It's and, and and like when you're uh, that's what I kind of said was like when you're in the position of buying it, there's lots of things that you can dictate. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that's a, that's a really it, good point. You know, if it's it, like, yeah, well, sure, we'll buy your fruit, uh, but you have to vaccinate all your workers against Hep A, and you have to prove to us that you did that. Yeah. Yeah. And and we'll and and now you know that's 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 our those are our terms. And I I mean you this is probably why you and I do what we do, and we're not in the <laughs> risk management real, world, real real world uh, jobs. Yeah. Yeah, like that might not be a good negotiating tactic. I don't know, but that's you know from the from a um, a science side of things, that's where where I would you know where I would go at least in having that conversation. Because um, you know I made the the point to to the company in our last conversation that without any sort of um, you know ther- you know thermal treatment step, any you know blanching validated or not, what comes in on that product if you don't if all you do is freeze it. That's what goes out. And and so you're at the mercy of that supplier. And hopefully that supplier knows what they're doing. But if you don't tell them what to do or you don't tell them what your expectations are and you don't have some sort of form of a way to verify that, then uh, then you're not – you're really not protecting yourself. Um, and so I, you know, I say that not in a ranty kind of way. That was a discussion that we had and I think it was a really good, uh, good conversation. Yeah. Um, and so it's uh yeah it's there there's a lot of there's a lot of this uh kind of fun stuff uh um you know out there going on and that's i mean like just coming back to it here's i, I want to give you one more example before we move off of this mm-hmm. risk management thing i had a um i've been going back and forth uh over the last month or so with a a business who makes crepes you know about you know about crepes you had those I don't particularly care for crepes. Uh, my wife uh, likes them a lot, but uh, they're not my cup of tea. <laughs> they're not your cup of crepe. Nope, not my cup of pancake. I like I like a good uh, like a good uh, cornmeal pancake as my pancake. You like a you like a pina coken? Uh, it's, a, it's a Dutch pancake. Stroop waffle. A stroop, yeah, it's stroop, the the gazuntite. Um, so uh, this company called up about crepes, and they 
are um, they, they make a lot of crepes, and they need they uh, on a busy day don't they don't want to make them all to order, so they want to stack them up. And they stack them up from a quality standpoint. They can stack them in stacks of 25 or 50. And uh, then they put them in their walk-in cooler. And But they make them like a whole bunch. And uh, they got a problem. And their problem is gone. They can't get the center of their stack of crepes to cool in their walk-in um, down below 70 degrees in two hours. So they're, they're, they got a food coat issue. You know what my advice is? Uh, smaller stacks. Smaller stacks. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> and that, uh, so fine. That's where this conversation started. And they're like, "It's uh, we don't have space. We really like, and this is we're we're really they're trying to centralize what they do. They're opening up other spots. Um, they they want they want they need bigger they need bigger stacks. In fact, on and so what they wanted to know was, do they in fact have um, a uh, TCS food? Well, that that's that that and that is a more complicated question. Uh, but if but if uh, shorter stacks is not an option, um, that that would be a really good question. Yeah. Really yeah. Question. So, so I think and so where we're where we're kind of at is I don't know if they do. Um, and, and this is like a like another little nuanced situation where the crepe itself, one individual crepe. I take the water activity of that crepe. I don't know what it is. Let's assume that it's a crunchy one that's dried out a little bit uh, over time. That crepe, the water activity might be like uh, 0.84, 0.87. I don't know. Maybe let's assume that it's a TCS food. That's really not the question that they're or non TCS food. That's not the question they're asking though. The question that they're asking, and this is like a, 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 a I guess a way to look at this that is a little more. Um, uh, I guess complicated, which is, is a stack of 25 crepes a TCS food, not as one crepe a TCS food. Cause what they're creating is this stack. And in the middle of that stack, the water activity might be higher. Maybe it's 0.92. I don't know. I'm totally making this up. We just don't know the answer to that. So we're, we're working on a way to help them answer that question. And I fear based on what I find in the literature and talking to a couple of folks that know their crepes that, uh, it is a still a TCS food. And I think that their answer is that they're going to have to find small, a way to make smaller stacks or they're going to have to pre-cool these crepes before they stack them up. And that's, uh, that's like something that are, it's going to change their process. Well, or, that, I, or I would say uh, do a challenge study, right? And, and in fact, uh, yes. I'm, I'm, we're going to link to the NACMIF uh, challenge study document, which is, which is something that we've talked about many times before. And in fact, this would make a really good uh, uh, example for, uh, to be covered in that uh, course that I teach with Linda Harris and, and Kathy Glass. Um, and I can imagine, you know, thinking through this and how would you do a study like this? And I would say probably you want to stack up these crepes. I would say probably target organism is staphylococcus. Is aureus, right? Because this is the Boom, being ding, handled, ding, ding. right? Yep. Um, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Mine's at home. Uh, oh, man. Um, uh, so, uh, Staph aureus, and then, yeah, and what's the temperature, and what's the time, and what's the pH, and what's the water activity? And you could design a really nice challenge study. Um, again, it, unfortunately, that's going to probably lead to, you know, it's going to be expensive. It's not going to be cheap to do that study, and so it might be easier to, to figure out a, you know, how to increase the square footage or, or somehow cool these, uh, cool these crepes, uh, better. But, uh, but yeah, there's definitely, uh, a number of different ways you can solve the problem, but, it, but I would say it starts with a recognition that, uh, you know, you need, uh, 
you, you need to, to, to see whether they're a, a TCS food or not. Right, right, right. And uh, shout out to um, Joelle Eifert because she's mm-hmm. a person who I talked about this. And we, we, we love Joelle. Mm-hmm. You know, you know yeah, Joelle. I know Did Joelle. You, had you met Joelle before I, I, I met, uh, CFP? No, I met her for the first time at CFP. Oh, she's a wonderful person. And I don't know if she listens, but maybe someone who does listen to this, like uh, you know, Renee Boyer, our, our good friend, who who listens to us at the gym while she's lifting weights, uh, will uh, let Joelle know that we uh, had a shout out to her. Because Joelle was uh, one of the people that I reasoned through this process with a little bit. And um, so, but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're on the, um, here. here's the, here's where we do what we do and someone else makes a risk management decision is even doing that challenge study is um, is a risk management kind of decision because it says, okay, if I want to continue down this line of doing this exact step, this exact process that I do, am I able to do that uh, in a way where I'm not going to have a staff aureus problem? And that, as you highlight, has a cost associated with it. Well, you and I are really good at doing stuff. Um, we don't, I don't make any products. I don't have a business model. I don't, uh, you know, we, this is, I, I'm not in the risk management world. I'm in the world of helping people make risk management decisions, but ultimately it, it comes down to what they want to do. Um, and I don't, I don't, you know, it's something that we've talked about in the past and I've written about on Barflog. I really like from a philosophical standpoint, I don't like telling people what to do because I don't like to be told what to do. Well, and and honestly, there's liability there. So I would much rather say, look, here's what the science says. Here's what I think the issues are. Here's where I think you have data or where you need data. And and here's here's what you need to think about as you as you make this as you make this decision. So there's a lot of good reasons uh, to not be a risk manager. And and in fact, the kind of job that we have and the work that we do lets us kind of pretend to be risk managers. But at the end of the day, we're not risk managers. We're we are just simply people that are going to help try to help people make better decisions. Right. Okay. So this is a segue into we like it's almost like we planned this stuff today because mm. I read what you put in to the mm. uh-huh. to the thing and I, and I had a like a, um, a mind map in my mind where we were going to go <laughs> and are we going and there are we going there oh, we're, go- oh, we're we, going there now are we are we going are we going to uh, FDA's abstinence only approach to eating cookie dough is unrealistic and alarming. Oh, are we ever? Ding, ding, ding. Oh, excellent. So, so as a way of setting this up, let's first uh, let's first say uh, that there is an E. coli O121 out, uh, outbreak going on right now, um, and in fact, the outbreak was recently expanded. And if we have if we have time, maybe I can talk a little bit about some conversations I've been having with a company that's impacted by that. I don't want to say too much, uh, but we'll anonymize it and, and talk about it generically. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so number one, the outbreak has expanded, and number two. Two, uh, there is an article uh, that appeared in um, Slate's culture blog called blog called uh, uh, Browbeat, um, and it, and the title of the uh, article, uh, which came across my uh, internets, um, uh, is entitled "FDA's Abstinence-Only Approach to Eating Cookie Dough is Unrealistic and Alarmist." It's by V. L. Anderson. And uh, I will just read to you a little bit, uh, and I know you've read this, but I will read to you a little bit to kind of set this up, and then I'll let you, uh, I'll let you run with it for a bit. So, uh, so this article was published on uh, July 1st, and it says this week the Food and Drug Administration issued a, quote, consumer update, close quote, warning Americans not to eat or even touch raw cookie dough, bread dough, or cake batter. 
the administration's concern is not salmonella, not capitalized, not italicized in raw eggs, which, as I wrote in 2014, has always been rare, has gotten even rarer in recent decades. Instead, the FDA wants us to worry about uncooked flour, which can harbor dangerous bacteria like E. coli. Quote, the bottom line for you and your kids is don't eat raw dough, quote, end quote, warns the agency. Quote, even though there are websites devoted to flour crafts, don't give your kids raw dough or baking mixes that contain flour to play with, close quote. Uh, reading a little bit more from the article, should you really throw out your homemade Play-Doh, swear off licking the spoon, and tear up your recipe for cookie dough billionaire bars? Many of the media companies have passed along FDA's message saying the answer is yes. Um, uh, quoting from the New York Times, quoting from uh, Salon, um, uh, and then uh, also quoting from uh, Gawker. Uh, and again, I want to get to the meat of what L.V. Anderson is, is saying here. Uh, she says, uh, uh, a closer look at the reasons behind FDA's recommendations reveal they might just be exaggerating the risks of cookie dough. Uh, FDA issued the warning after investigating an outbreak of a virulent strain linked to a batch of flour produced in a General Mills facility in Kansas City, Missouri, um, et cetera, et cetera. Forty-two people in 21 states have contracted flour-linked E. coli since December. No one has died, Ben. No one has died. And yet the no FDA's response is to tell everyone, all 319 million Americans, not to eat any uncooked flour whatsoever. Uh, by comparison, the Chipotle E. coli outbreak affected 60 people in 14 states, and the FDA didn't respond by telling people not to eat at Chipotle. All it said was consumers who have recently gotten ill after eating at Chipotle should contact their health care provider. Uh, this was a reasonable recommendation, probably reflects the political hazards of a government agency bashing a particular company. I think that she's wrong on that point, but totally. I, will turn, I, it over, I will turn it over to you to, to respond. Okay, so uh, there's, there's a, bunch of, a bunch of stuff here, and I, I did an interview uh, yesterday or day before maybe for um, live, uh, live Science, which is uh, like one of these uh, internet science. I think it's Yahoo Science maybe used to be. Anyway, where we talked about this exact article and FDA's um, uh, messages and, and why these are different. And in fact, the Live Science question, and so this, this article is not out yet, but maybe it will be by, the, you know, by today sometime. Um, the um, uh, the uh, uh, author is her name's Stephanie, and I think her last name's Pappas. Stephanie said, "What makes this different from why doesn't FDA tell you to not eat uh, raw fruits and vegetables?" Um, in you know, in the same way, what's what makes this difference? Which is, I think, is a much better question than why didn't FDA tell people to stop eating at Chipotle? But I'm going to come back to that mm-hmm. um, in a, in a second. And so, uh, the the what I kind of reason with with Stephanie is um, raw flour, and we talked a little bit about this in episode one or two, but I, w- I want to come back to it. Raw flour is not a type of food that. Um, is typically from our consumption patterns is t- typically consumed raw, like without some sort of heat treatment. Like we don't have a history of eating it. Now, fresh fruits and vegetables, um, Don typically are consumed raw, right? Like I'll be right there in the name of uh, fresh, <laughs> fresh fruits like raw. And because of this, and I, you know, um, we, I, I don't know. I, 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 we know, we know, I know people, uh, at General Mills have talked to some folks, not specifically about this, but the difference between focusing on a, a product that is not typically consumed raw versus one that is, is we've got 20 years 
uh, now of good agricultural practices for fresh fruits and vegetables. We have a system um, the retail uh, retailers imposed and buyers imposed on implementing good agricultural practices and verifying it through third parties. We've got Food Safety Modernization Act and the produce rule, a whole bunch of things focusing on making sure um, that we keep pathogens, reduce pathogens as much as possible on those fresh fruits and vegetables. And with when it comes to raw cookie dough, it's different because there is like it. It's a product that's not intended to be eaten raw. Not unlike our frozen food uh, discussions that we had in 103 and, and in other times. Um, now that's a, that's not a cop out. That's not a well. We because it's not intended to be eaten raw, and people are eating it raw. Should we just say, well, don't eat it raw? Which is kind of where where FDA is going. But I had assumed that the industry, um, and like uh, we saw with Nestle following the um, Toll House cookie dough E. coli uh, pathogenic E. coli outbreak in 2009, requiring their suppliers to do some thermal treatment of, of flour um, and validating some sort of process to, to do that. So it's not like the buyers, and I would assume that General General Mills is probably going through some of those steps now, saying, look, we we now see that um, we have a risk, there's a public health risk here with 42 illnesses uh, and no deaths, uh, yes, um, is that, uh, you know, we probably need to focus a little more about keeping um, pathogenic E. coli out of that raw flour. Um, but this history, it's, it's, a, it's a history issue. I think it's an intended use issue. And what comes down to what we talked about a couple episodes ago as well is what's the prevalence? How much? What's the concentration? What's the prevalence? And we've got a, a big chunk of, uh, of history on prevalence of pathogens associated with fresh fruits and vegetables. And we know that some are higher risk than others. And if we go to cilantro, for instance, and salmonella, looking at recent data from that um, USDA's uh, MDP, Microbiological Data Program, something like 11% of the cilantro that was sampled in that year had um, salmonella on it. And um, you know, in other cases, we may be down below 1% uh, of, of pathogens, but we've got better data. Flour, I still feel like, is new to us, even though and we looked to this in a previous um, uh uh, episode, you know, that, that people have been looking at thermal tolerance or not thermal, thermal treatment of flour and the ability for certain pathogens to survive that process. And, um, Rob Williams at Virginia Tech had a, a master's student a couple of years ago look at different ways to process flour following this, this outbreak. I still think that that's part, partially why FDA is essentially making, and this is where we bring it all back to what we're talking about. FDA is making a threshold risk management decision for consumers or trying to by saying we uh, we're not getting into the um, threshold of what you're able to take on as, as a consumer. Our best advice right now is don't eat the stuff raw and you do what you want. That's your risk management decision. But our communication message and best practice would be to not eat it. And I don't find it. Um, I don't find it unrealistic or alarmist. I find it, it and, and what I wish we had, and this is where I do fault uh, FDA, is I wish they had included, here are the validated studies or here's the data that we are um, making this decision on. And if you cook it and, and the dough sets, 
and it gets above 200, you know, and eight degrees or 206 degrees or whatever it is that a cookie needs to get to to set, um, that we know we're going to have a six and a half log reduction of salmonella and E. coli 0121 or whatever it is that we know that there's data out there. This is how we're making this decision. Um, and that there's a step available for you to, to actually reduce your risk and all that kind of stuff. I think that's, that's missing. I think you can call them out for that, but I don't think that, um, that this is an alarmist approach. <sighs> There I am. Wow. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I, I I think you're whoa. I think you're I think you're on target. I think you're on target. And there's uh, <laughs> uh, a very good uh, very good uh, blog post uh, by Doug uh, talking about this uh, and actually referencing uh, the Walkerton outbreak and and talking about um, uh, the the day to day drama and stress that people experience uh, when they're in the middle of a, a food poisoning outbreak. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> sorry, to, sorry to rant there for like nine minutes. No, straight. it was it was so good. I just, I just don't have anything to add. As often is the case when one of us rants about something, um, except to say, yeah, I mean, I think you're I think you're 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 spot on. Uh, the other one one thing I will add is that there are companies out there that are doing uh, good things. So I've been approached by a company that bought flour. Um, uh, from uh, General Mills, and they're getting their ducks in a row in terms of the uh, what they might need to do in terms of a recall and, and getting uh, good uh, risk communication messages from FDA. The other thing that I would add is that um, just uh, apropos uh, the IAFP meeting, which is coming up, um, I've been collaborating with a colleague um, in industry, and we have a, a, a poster that we're going to be presenting at IAFP uh, entitled Modeling the Risk of Salmonellosis Associated with Consumption of Frozen Precooked Pancakes. So this is a, a food company that makes frozen, basically frozen pancakes or frozen waffles. And uh, they wanted to say, they wanted to figure out, um, okay, so we have this process that we do, we use to pre-cook these, um, uh, these, these pancakes and we sell them to consumers and the consumers reheat them. We know that we can't rely on consumer reheating as a uh, validated cooking step. Um, and so we want to know whether our cooking process, uh, what it does for salmonella. And, and of course they hadn't studied this previously because who thought that there would be possibly salmonella in, uh, in, in flour, uh, right? Well, of course they knew that there was, there's a really good article a few years back by Bill Sperber that shows that, in fact, that's the case, and we'll link to that if we can. But uh, kudos to this company for actually getting out ahead of this and saying, okay, well, we're going to figure out what our risk is um, based on the process that we have. And so he collected some data. He, he did some risk modeling. You know, we, we collaborated with him on that. And basically it shows that uh, very rarely, um, based on, again, the, their target cooking temperatures, uh, very rarely would you have an, an illness that would, uh, would occur. It's on the order of one illness every several years or, depending on the final cooking temperature, one illness every several hundred years. And so, um, you know, that's the kind of thinking that I think the industry needs to, to start doing, including folks at, at General Mills. So, um, and, and yeah, and risk management, it's, here's the thing. It's easy to sit and, and, and to, uh, to kibitz and to think about while FDA is being overly conservative. But, you know, the job of the FDA is to protect public health. And so they have to make the best decision they can that they believe is protective of public health. Um, 
And, and sometimes that advice is to tell people don't eat raw dough. Certainly, if, you're, if, if L.V. Anderson wants to eat raw dough, my gosh, go ahead. More power to you. Go eat raw dough. I wouldn't feed it to your kids if you have kids, right? And I certainly if – I, if I had uh, young kids, I wouldn't be feeding it to my kids. I wouldn't let them play with raw dough. Could they do that most of the time and be safe? Sure, absolutely they could. But, but it's not – there's no reason to – allow that, right? I mean, okay, so maybe they're going to have a tiny bit of anxiety if they can't uh, play with uh, dough, uh, raw dough, but gosh, you could probably find them some suitable uh, alternative to that, right? Uh, and yeah, don't don't eat raw dough for a variety of reasons, including including salmonella from eggs, but also apparently including E. coli from flour. Yeah. Let's come back. Um, I like, let's come back to the Chipotle stuff too. Sure. Yes. A little bit. So, Sorry for the the exhale there, Don. Yeah. This this is this is different. Yep. And 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 why it's different is it's because eating eating at Chipotle at, while this outbreak was being investigated back or these two outbreaks that were being investigated um, has a different. It's a different situation than having a bunch of flour that's sitting in someone's pantry and. Um, it, it, it's not, I, I can't think of any situation where FDA has told people to, to avoid a, um, a specific business that they don't directly regulate, right? Like that's what, that, that's what they're, they don't, FDA sets a model code, um, in, in, you know, investigating, uh, outbreaks uh, is a and and regulating um, restaurants uh, is a is a state or local level um, uh, activity. Now, if this was um, this outbreak, which we you know we still have not come back to what a source is for this O two six at Chipotle. If it was a product that uh, was FDA regulated, I think they have the the place to do. And what we're talking about here is flour, which is an FDA regulated product. I think that has right. more to do with it. Right. Um, well, and in, and, and, in, and in fact, knowing people that work at FDA, they have to follow the law, right? And they absolutely, can, FDA can get in a lot of trouble if they don't follow the law. And and it may, in fact, be against the law for FDA to warn people not to eat at Chipotle because, as you point out, they don't regulate Chipotle. Chipotle is regulated by the various state public health departments or the various state agencies in the states where they're located. They are not regulated by the FDA. So, so, and, and honestly, in the case of Chipotle, the risk management burden is on Chipotle. It is up to Chipotle right. to make sure the food that it serves is safe. Now, certainly it's up to General Mills to make sure that the flour it sells to people is safe. Um, but FDA has a much more clear direction there because, again, there's General Mills who's made the flour, and then there's the consumers who bought the flour. Maybe there's restaurants that uh, that have handled the flour, and, again, they have the, the burden of managing that. And it's the, up to those restaurants to decide whether it's a good risk management strategy to give kids raw dough to play with or not, right? And again, if I was one of those restaurants, I'd be rethinking that policy real quick um but but ultimately it, it it's a it's a it's an apples to oranges comparison uh, yeah uh, absolutely or and, tacos, and so, tacos to uh flour comparison taco stuff yeah good good it's uh it's just different so, and, and here's a the situation uh fda um let's let me go with uh what they say about sprouts mm. the a product that they do regulate let me let's get the actual uh uh, terminology here. 
because I believe they say that this is uh, they they are a food that you should not eat uh, if you are at a high risk for uh, foodborne illness. Uh, something like that. I don't know if I'll be able to find it quick enough here, but mm-hmm. but that's the, the that's the the thing that every time. Um, uh, sprouts and they regulate it. Like I mean, that's the thing is that it's not like it's in a product that's illegal. They do. We we know that there's a, a sprout safety alliance um, that that are in, in place and FDA does uh, regulation, but they still say something about uh, they don't you know don't eat sprouts if you're high risk for foodborne illness. Yep, yep, absolutely. Which I think is probably the right advice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and they say things like, uh, you know, sprout growers are vigilant in their food safety practices. Um, so anyway, yep. I, I can't find that. I, but okay. before we leave, before we leave uh, Chipotle, um, I do want to talk about something that happened yesterday, which is like uh, just goes how it shows you how this communication and social media uh, situation works. Um, so we we're all familiar. We've we've even talked about Chipotle the musical. This is they've been a uh, a um, reoccurring character on our podcast over the last uh, year, and their stock dropped yesterday uh, based on two tweets uh, that are food safety related. And uh, one tweet uh, from uh, a um, uh, who is this guy? I think he is a screenwriter or an author. His name is Eric Van Lusterbader. He tweets Van yesterday. Van Lusterbader. Yeah, that's what. Uh, yeah, I think he, he's he's. Uh, oh, here he goes. Sorry, no, I know what he is. He wrote the Jason Bourne novels. Oh, yeah, Eric. So he's, that's right. He's an author. Um, uh, so he tweets yesterday. Uh, you know, somewhat out of nowhere, this Chipotle thing is still ongoing. My editor ended up in urgent care after being deathly ill all night from eating at Chipotle's. And Whoa. then, uh, yeah, and then someone responds, um, says, uh, if he was deathly ill, why was he only in urgent care and not in ER? Um, and then Eric points out she was sent to ER, spent seven hours there, bacteria found, doctor surmised from unsanitary food handling, in urgent care to get two liters of fluid. Um, and then that explodes, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, they lost, uh, uh, what was it? Three and a half percent Thursday morning uh, on their stocks based on that. Mm-hmm. Like there's still some, something going on. So you can't like, I, and I just, I, I, I put this in there cause I've been, I'm t- you know, close to the, uh, financial world Don, cause uh, I'm, I'm a bit of an expert uh, in this. <laughs> do you know, do you know why I, uh, I watched the big short last night on Netflix. Oh <laughs> yeah. It's a, Fantastic movie, uh, and and so there you go. Just just that you know that message by uh, someone uh, Eric Van Luster Lusterbader who has um, three thousand followers on Twitter and is a famous famous person leads to uh, with retweets and uh, a whole bunch of other things um, ends up uh, dropping stock. That's how that's how tenuous. The trust is in that company based on these these issues from an investment standpoint, which just goes and, and I don't even know how we can begin to quantify the effects of foodborne illness burden um, on a company, you know, by by all of these types of things because that's the that the history and the issues that they went through mean that any little little thing that may or may not be true it doesn't matter. 
there's this court of public opinion uh, situation where, uh, well, let's start selling off Chipotle stocks again because uh, they might be in the source of another outbreak. Yeah, and I, you know, and what I've said before, and I'll say it again, I. I loved Chipotle. I used to love going there. I first discovered them when I was in Minnesota for a week in the summer, and there was a Chipotle near my restaurant. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the best food I've ever had. I really like it. Um, and I just don't want to go back there. I just have no I, – I just, I just do not care to give them my business. And, uh, you know, for better or worse, I mean, it's a shame. But, uh, yeah, and, and they, you know, they have uh, – we, as we've talked about many times on the podcast, they kind of – did some things that were, you know, they set themselves up to be uh, sort of, and I, actually I was talking with a reporter from China about this, uh, talking about uh, Chinese food safety and, and various things, uh, and talking about Chipotle again. Like they set themselves up as the as this paragon of food safety. Actually, the, the, the Chinese one was really interesting, and maybe we'll just wrap on this because I know you have a hard out coming. Um, there's apparently something going on in China right now where wealthy people are deciding to basically not trust the Chinese food supply, and they're setting up their own little fiefdoms of food uh, where they basically uh, hire people that grow the food and they process their own food and, and all of this. And, and, and my, you know, my, my take to the reporter was, well, that's fine, but food safety is hard, and you know, wouldn't you – are you sure if you're going to do all of that, aren't, are you sure that you have the expertise within your little food fiefdom to manage that manage all that because again as as Doug is fond of pointing out uh, local doesn't mean safe and as we learned from Chipotle you know if you have multiple suppliers or you have small suppliers or heck you're you're growing your own food um, you could potentially screw things up and just because you're doing it yourself doesn't mean that it's going to be safe and in fact it might be less safe if you don't know what you're doing and so um, anyway that you know interesting times uh, for for food safety certainly interesting times with uh, social media um, uh, I don't know, Ben. I think we've helped a lot of people this week. <laughs> I think so. We're 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 helpers. We were, uh, yeah. We're that's I'm, we've give, we've lent a helping hand. That's my only. Uh, that's my only cliche today. Yeah, I've just I've just lent one helping hand. You probably lent both helping hands. <laughs> you left you left your uh, right hand. Uh, right hand. Your robotic your robotic hand uh, is uh, your Wolverine hand is staying in your pocket. Oh, like and, and- like. And like uh, Alanis Morissette. Yes, yeah, shout out, shout out to uh, to Noro Nerd who uh, encouraged me to uh, perhaps shoot pins out of my hand <laughs> at the IAFP meeting uh, this summer uh, during the amicable exchange of experts. If things get out of hand, and so thanks to her for that, I almost wanted to actually shoot pins out of my hand uh, after she suggested that on Twitter. So uh, yeah, so thanks, thanks, shout out to uh, to Noro Nerd for that. Oh, I thought that was the greatest. Nora Nerd, she's, uh, she's good on the Twitter. She is. She's very good on the Twitter. Um, cool. Hey, uh, let's, uh, let's call this an episode, and uh, let's, uh, let's uh, button it up, as they say on, uh, on Back to Work, or as we like to say, uh, wrap it or um, uh, sous vide it. Let's sous vide this. Okay, let's, let's, let's cook it. Let's cook it. Let's cook, let's cook it off. All right, Don, I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.
Nice. Cool. Nice. Very good. Yeah. I, I'm, uh, uh, we're doing a, I'm, I'm, I'm training, uh, Katrina and I, Katrina who works for me, uh, we are training people over Skype on how to, um, bag some food, uh, in, for in, a project. In three minutes, you're training people. Uh, no, in seven minutes, in oh. eight minutes. I, I needed to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Before um, I, well, that was my heart. Good thing you have a urinal right in your office. I know. It's just I just went in the corner while we were well, well, during my rant. Uh, it was good. You could probably couldn't hear. I didn't flush. No, so. it was good. It was good. Very quiet. Have a great time in uh, in the Emerald Isle. I will. I will. You you have a good uh, time uh, teaching food safety via Skype. <laughs> and I we'll, will. We'll be, a, we'll be in touch. We will. And you. So this one is yours. Yes. Uh, and I think everything I talked about, I sent you a text. Yep, yep, yep. I got, I got it all in the uh, Safari. Awesome, good. We're we're so on top of this. People love us because we're because uh, we figured it out, Don. Yep. Uh, I'm gonna go uh, figure out uh, uh, the urinal. All right, you do that. <laughs> all right, Take talk care, to you man. later. Bye.